Take your Bibles and turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 6. Looking at the subject matter this morning from pain to progress. It's come to my attention during this time of the year when we are dealing with uh, deacon nomination and then of course next month deacon election. It's been perhaps 10 years since I have addressed these matters on a Sunday morning. Normally we address them on a Sunday night in a smaller setting. Perhaps it's something like a deacon ordination service. And that it may be time that uh, the larger body on a Sunday morning uh, have the benefit of seeing what these verses teach. And uh, let me assure you though that if you're not in the camp of uh, serving as a deacon, there's going to be something in this passage today for everybody, okay? Uh, Would you stand for the reading of God's word please? Uh, Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, beginning in verse 1, says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. Now notice verse 7. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, we're so grateful that when we open the word of God, we find passages therein that have to do with the body life of the church. In 1 Timothy 3, you refer to the church as the foundation and pillar of the truth. You tell us that we're a, to be a chosen race, we're to be like strangers living amidst the darkness. We're to be salt and light. So very clearly you care about the ministry of the church and you care about the testimony of the church. And Lord, you care about how we minister to one another. For that reason, in Hebrews 10, you tell us that we're to stir one another up to love and good deeds. And all the more as we see the day approaching. And that we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. We thank you that you care about the life of the church and about the leadership in the church and about needs being met and people being prayed for. Lord, help us to understand those issues this morning. We thank you for this church and the, the, uh, the love for one another, the unity, the love for your word and your kingdom's purposes that we see. 
God, we pray that that would only increase. That's the, that's the gift of your grace. Give us understanding into, into these matters this morning. And Father, again, I pray that if any are here that do not know Christ, that your Holy Spirit would work on them in such a way that they would say, you know, I want to be a member of the body of Christ. We thank you for this day. Lord, we thank you for this occasion. And we know that in the life of our church, we're about to do exactly what this passage addresses us concerning. Give us wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Generally speaking, the assassination of President Abraham Lincoln, while certainly a great tragedy, nonetheless left the United States with a very important lesson from history. After 600,000 Americans had lost their lives in the Civil War, Lincoln gave his second inaugural address, the now famous speech entitled, Charity for All. It was delivered on March the 4th, 1865, one month before Lincoln's assassination. There's a photograph of Lincoln giving his speech which also shows John Wilkes Booth standing above and behind Lincoln in the balcony. Lincoln ended his speech with these words, With malice toward none, with charity for all, let us strive to finish the work that we're in. To bind up the nation's wounds, to care for him who shall have borne the battle, and for his widow as well as his orphan. But what perhaps was taken for granted at the time was that oftentimes after a war is over and victory is declared, sentiments and hatred still run very deep and people will act out their hatred on those they blame, even after the peace has been declared. Well, in this case, the president tragically lost his life, not in the war, but after the war, because of those very sentiments. Folks, I think we would all agree the lessons of history are very important. Likewise, as we read the New Testament, as we think also about the last 2,000 years of church history, lessons are very important in the history of the church. For example, I think of what happened there in Acts chapter 15 and what is commonly referred to as the Jerusalem Council. Very important historical moment took place in the life of the church. You see, they were were meeting there in that council to determine what they were going to do with Gentiles who were coming into the church. What would be required of those who were not Jews? What would be required of Gentiles? Would the church simply stand upon salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone or would other things be added into the gospel? Would we end up with the gospel or some other kind of distortion of the gospel? 
And so it would be very hard to overestimate the importance of what took place there in Acts chapter 15. Well, likewise, when we think of the history of the church, Acts chapter 6 is one of those very important historical passages. Because here a division has entered into the church, and so will the church in its infancy be split. If it splits, what will happen next? Will it survive? If it survives, what will the ministry of that church look like? John R.W. Stott writes, The devil's attack here was the cleverest of the three so far. Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which though essential was not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach and so leave the church without any defense against uh, false doctrine. I want you to see today how the early church solved a pressing problem. And their solution was not simply policy, but people. A whole new grouping of servants was added, a grouping that came to be referred to as deacons. I want you to see how important this group was and how they helped the church to flourish. And what we're going to see today is, is how when it's done right... A good group of deacons can be a blessing to both pastor and people. The first thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the problem. Look at verse 1. It says, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now put simply, the problem is neglect. We don't need to assume that the neglect was intentional. In fact, I would assume just the opposite. It was probably just a natural oversight. And it's a neglect that came because of the rapid growth of the church at this point in its history. And to see that rapid growth, all you would really have to do is turn back to the previous pages in the book of Acts. And what you would find going on there would be, first of all, mass evangelism. Mass evangelism is much like what Dr. Billy Graham has done in our own uh, common uh, 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 contemporary generations. Where he meets in stadiums and coliseums around the world and preaches the gospel and hundreds and even thousands come to faith in the Lord Jesus. That's mass evangelism. And we see on the day of Pentecost that they were engaged in mass evangelism. Peter stood up and he preached his famous sermon uh, there on the day of Pentecost. And we're told when he gave the invitation there were thousands that day who were added to the church. Could you imagine a day in the life of the church where the preacher gives an invitation and 3,000 people respond to that invitation? Well, that's what occurred. And then you read on in the book of Acts, those early chapters, in verse 42 of of chapter 5, it says, Every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. And so not only mass evangelism, but also personal evangelism. 
where you visit with somebody, sit down with somebody at work perhaps, and you share your testimony and what Christ has done in your life, and you share the gospel, and one-on-one or in a small group, uh, you lead somebody to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Personal evangelism. And so the church was seeing the fruits of both mass evangelism and personal evangelism at this point. You know, the Bible tells us if we sow sparingly, we'll also reap sparingly. But if we sow bountifully, we'll reap bountifully. Well, they were sowing bountifully. And so they were reaping bountifully. Well, as they were growing exponentially, you'll notice some in the fellowship were being overlooked. There's this problem that surfaces. They, as they were reaching people, some that were coming into the fellowship were being overlooked. And it seems like the ones being overlooked were perhaps the most vulnerable and the most needy in the, in the congregation. The Bible says the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected. Now at this point in the book of Acts, you had two primary groups. You had the native Hebrews. They most likely spoke Hebrew in the most formal settings and Aramaic in day-to-day conversation. And then there were the Hellenistic Jews. These were the Jews who had moved outside of Israel and many of them had moved back home. They spoke Greek. Now, remember back several centuries earlier, Alexander the Great was the leader of the Greeks. When the Greeks came to power, they defeated the Persians. The Persians had defeated the Babylonians. Then after the Greeks, the Romans defeated the Greeks. But dating back several centuries, Alexander the Great had led his people to be the primary empire of that time. And and he built a tremendous empire. And it was his belief that all of the world should be Greek. And so he set out to Hellenize the world. That's what it's referred to as the Hellenization of the world. Well, he was not only successful at military conquest, but he spread Greek culture and language. And so many of the Jews had moved outside of Israel to those other parts of the world and they were involved in all of that. But not surprisingly, as they aged and circumstances changed in their lives, like becoming a widow, for instance, many of them moved back to their homeland. And as they did so and heard the gospel and were converted and came into the church, the charge was that the Hellenistic Greek widows were being overlooked. And the Bible says there began to be some murmuring. Now that's not a good thing to happen, but nevertheless, that's what happened. It's the same word being used here as in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures known as the Septuagint. If you read in the Septuagint back in the book of Exodus and you see how the children of Israel when they came out of Egypt and got out into the wilderness they began murmuring against Moses. It's the same word, very same word being used here. They began to murmur. And the murmuring came to the attention of the apostles. Now, who are the apostles? The apostles were none other than the twelve disciples of Jesus that Jesus called back in in the Gospels at the beginning of his public ministry. 
The apostles at this point are the 12 disciples minus Judas, of course, who betrayed the Lord. And then in Acts chapter 1, you'll see at the end of Acts chapter 1 that the church through prayer had replaced Judas with a man by the name of uh, Matthias. And so those 11, original 11 plus Matthias, uh, were the apostles that's being referred to here. An apostle was one who had been called to be a follower of Jesus Christ during his three-year earthly ministry who had also witnessed his death, burial, and resurrection. And so may I remind you that there are no apostles today according to the true biblical definition of the term. That's not uncommon at this time of the year as you travel to the beach and other places, maybe the mountains. You'll come through some of these little towns and in these towns you'll see some churches. And out in front of those churches you'll see a church sign. And on some of those church signs it'll say, Pastor, Apostle, so-and-so. Now here's what you can do. You can pull into the parking lot and knock on the door and go into that church and explain to them that they've got it wrong. There's no such thing in 2012 as an apostle. And you can go in and have that discussion with them. Don't do that. You might end up in jail and I'll have to come bail you out. But the problem came to the attention of the apostles. Now secondly, I want you to notice the proposal. Beginning in verse 2 it says, And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Now the really neat thing to see here is the way they handle the situation. It's so important to the life of the church how conflicts are handled. They handle this conflict in a very admirable way. Folks, do you understand how important this was? I mean, this could have been a recipe for the first church split in church history. Now, by the way, you always know how to spot a church split, don't you? When you go through these little towns and you see a church named Love Memorial or Unity Baptist or Fellowship Baptist, if you turn into that church and ask to see their uh, historical records, I can just about guarantee you that you will see that they used to belong to another fellowship somewhere and that fellowship split. And because they didn't perceive themselves have very good fellowship at their previous place of worship, they'll name the new place Fellowship Baptist. Or because there wasn't much love at the, fir- at the former church, they'll name their new church Love Baptist. Or because there wasn't much unity in the old place, they'll name the new place Unity. So you can almost always be assured where you find Unity Baptist, Love Baptist, or Fellowship Baptist, that's a church that came out of a split. So oftentimes though they've changed the name maybe, but the people have remained the same. Well, the apostles knew that their primary attention had to be given to the ministry of the Word. Now, they're not saying their work was more spiritual, and they were not saying that waiting on tables was not important. They were simply saying they could not do everything and do everything effectively. 
And folks, that's so important for churches to realize today. We have people that serve in a dozen different areas. And thank God for those who do that. But tragically, maybe the reason they're serving in a dozen different areas is because there are far too many in the church that are simply not serving in any area. Likewise, pastors aren't supposed to do it all. It'd be unhealthy for them, for their families. It'd be unhealthy for you. And so we find a passage like Ephesians 4 that says that uh, evangelists and pastors and prophets are, are, to, are to train the laity, we're to, we're to equip the saints for works of service. We're to get everybody involved. You see what's going on here? What's going on here is a call for the division of labor. A division of labor where everybody's involved, everybody's got a job, everybody's got a responsibility, everybody's got something to do for the good of that fellowship. Now folks, they didn't allow the complainers to set the agenda. What a mistake that is when any pastor does that. But neither did they ignore the situation. They came up with a plan where the group neglected put forth some names and so more people got involved in ministry. More people developed ownership. More people started using their gifts. Then the apostles were able to get back to doing what God had called and commissioned them to do. Folks, this is so basic to the life of the church. This is the biblical plan for the church. Let's think about that a moment. The gifts that God gives the body. Four at least four different places in the New Testament. The Bible talks about gifts that he gives to a body. And each one of those four passages carries a little different emphasis with it. For example, Romans 12 that talks about the gifts in the body flows right after that first verse, that first verse that we memorize in vacation Bible school or Sunday school that says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice to the Lord which is your holy and acceptable worship. And then he goes right into talking about spiritual gifts. And so in other words, your, your, uh, your offering of yourself in your gift, your spiritual gift, is, is part of that offering of your life that Romans 12 is referring to there as a result of your salvation, being a recipient of the grace of God and your name written in the Lamb's book of life, you need to use your spiritual gift and serve. And then 1 Corinthians 12 talks about how God distributes the gifts in the body according to His sovereign will. We don't pick our gift, God does. And, and God fits all the different gifts together in a body like a glove so that all the needs uh, and all the areas are taken care of and, and that body is strengthened. And 1 Corinthians 12 points out that nobody can really uh, devalue somebody else's uh, area of service or gift and, and likewise you can't elevate yours over that. All the gifts are important. In fact, 1 Corinthians 12 says some of those gifts that we don't immediately think of in the body uh, when you really think about it, they're really important to the life of the church. Aren't you glad right now that there's a group of ladies over in the nursery keeping the little babies? All the gifts are needed. Uh, Ephesians 4 again, the leadership developing people uh, to, for works of service. First Peter chapter 4 talks about that the utilization of our gifts is actually good stewardship. 
And so stewardship isn't just limited to what we put in the offering plate in church when the offering plate comes around, but stewardship also involves what we do with our spiritual gift. And so what I'm saying is there's a number of places in the New Testament that talks about this. And when we all utilize the gifts in the body, the the body becomes a more healthy body. Folks, you simply will not find an option in the New Testament where where Christians are, are let off the hook and not to use their gifts. There is not an observer only category. It's not there. There's no place in biblical New Testament Christianity where only a few do all of the giving, all of the going, and all of the serving. Probably my favorite story about this is the story of a nobleman several centuries ago in Europe. Of course, before the days of electricity, he built his village a nice, beautiful little chapel. And it was customary in those chapels that there would be hinges and fittings. uh, So all the lamps, would, the oil lamps would be around the, the, the chapel in various places giving light. And he put all the fittings and hinges in, but he didn't give lamps. And everybody wanted to know where the lamps was and so or where the lamps were. And so he met with everybody and, and they gave lamps out to everybody and they said, Now you can't leave your lamp here, you gotta take it home. And and that way, so if we come to church and there's an area of the church that is dark, it's because you weren't there with your lamp. You need to be there with your lamp to give light to the body. Man, what a great thing to do. Of course, I realize that wouldn't solve the problem for everybody today. They'd bring their lamp, they'd sit down, they'd still do nothing, right? Some people would. But the proposal, the proposal was to to appoint a special group to look after these special benevolent needs in the church. Some of these needs in the, the, the church that the most vulnerable in the congregation had. Now look at the persons, thirdly. Read with me in verse 3 and then 5 and 6. It says in verse 3, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Verse 5 says, And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Procurus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. I want you to notice a very important principle here. It mattered the kind of men that were selected. They were not told just to throw some names up in the air and see which ones landed first. There were some qualities that they were to look for. They were not to select men and hope that those selected would somehow or another suddenly rise up to those qualities. I've heard of situations before in churches where a man is made a deacon in the hopes that if he's made a deacon he might start attending church. How ridiculous. These men selected were to already possess these qualities. Now folks, what a testimony that ought to be to us. If God were to start looking for certain people to do something, would he even look at me? Would I even be in the running? We need to ask ourselves that question. What were the qualifications? 
There's three of them listed here. First of all, men of good repute. What type of reputation do you have? Would people you work with or play with be surprised to learn that you go to church? What's your reputation? Are you known for being mean-spirited? Are you known for being a gossip or maybe known for having a filthy mouth? They were to be men of a good reputation. Dr. Adrian Rogers used to tell the story of a man who went back to his dry cleaners over and over again and finally was so angry each time he kept telling them they weren't starching his shirts correctly. Every time he went back he was more rude, he was more belligerent with the clerk and finally he said, can you people here not do anything right? A couple weeks went by, he was at church one Sunday morning. Some friends in church said, hey, Mr. So-and-so, we'd like you to meet our neighbors. We brought our neighbors to church with us this morning. Well, guess who it was? It was that family that ran the dry cleaning business. He suddenly developed a lump in his throat. And later on, he asked those friends at church, he said, did they tell you they already knew me? And they said, oh, yeah, they told us they knew you. Well, did they say what they think of me? They said, uh, yeah, that you're pretty rude and belligerent and all you seem to care about in life is how your shirts are starched. What's your reputation? What's your reputation even with the outside world? Secondly, full of the Spirit. We need servants who have a heart for God. We need men who will display the fruit of the Spirit. That's how you can tell if somebody is full of the Spirit. It's not guesswork. Galatians 5, and 23 talks about the fruit of the Spirit. That ninefold fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. That ninefold fruit of the Spirit that, that, that's listed there. If somebody is walking in the Spirit and full of the Spirit, then they ought to be displaying the fruit of the Spirit. Thirdly, full of wisdom, a man with a good head on his shoulders, a man with some common sense. Now, folks, he's not talking about the wisdom of the world. When the Bible talks about wisdom, it never holds up the wisdom of the world as the goal. In fact, James 3 talks about the wisdom that is from above. I want you to notice something in the emphasis here. Acts 6 is not so much talking about what men do. It's emphasizing who men are. Because what you do flows out of who you are. Now I want you to realize at this point in church history, remember none of the epistles had been written as of yet. This is the only text at this point and that the early church had to go on. Uh, Possibly there's, there's James and Galatians that were very early, possibly the earliest letters in our New Testament, James or, or Galatians. But most of the letters of the New Testament, uh, they, they did not even have yet circulating around. It's this, the Acts 6 passage is still considered a very pivotal text, but there's another text that I want you to see because no church in 2012 can ignore it. We don't have that luxury because it too is a part of the inspired record. And that text dealing with this subject matter would, of course, be 1 Timothy chapter 3. 
Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 3 because the Bible continues there to talk about this same subject matter. Beginning in in verse 8 it says, Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who have served well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And so he adds to the list here. Then first thing on the list... Here is reverent or dignified. In other words, there's a serious spiritually minded attitude that he's to have. There's a certain attitude of worship that a deacon needs to have about his life. Deacons can have fun. Nothing wrong with that at all. We have fun. I hope we do in some of our meetings. But this word means that there is a seriousness about the man when it comes to the things of the Lord. Then he says he's not to be double-tongued. He's trustworthy. He carries out his ministry of looking after needs in the church. As he does so, he will not tell one person one thing and somebody else another thing. Next on the list, he's not addicted to much wine. Somebody says, oh, does that mean I can be addicted to some wine? Let me ask you something here. Let's suppose you're sitting in a restaurant somewhere. I'm not going to, this isn't just hypothetical. I've known of this very thing happening. I'm not saying necessarily here. Remember, I've pastored three different churches. But let's suppose you're sitting in a restaurant somewhere and in walks some of the families you minister to and children are with them. What if you're sitting there next to them in the booth or table next to them and let's say you're at Pizza Hut and, and you and some of your golfing buddies have been golfing that Saturday morning and, and you're hot from that and you finish golfing and you're there at Pizza Hut from lunch and your pizza's coming to the table and along with your pizza, y'all all have a, a pitcher of beer. You say, I didn't get drunk. I just had one beer, preacher. The Bible doesn't slam the door on that. Well, I hear what you're trying to say, but I, I want to ask you a question this morning. What are you going to do with 1 Corinthians 8, 1 Corinthians 9, and also Romans chapter 14? You see, those are passages that deal with that kind of stuff. Those passages say that you might be well within your rights and liberties to do what you're doing, but while you're carrying out your rights and liberties, your brother is uh, offended and he stumbles because of what you're doing. So what's Paul say? He says, I will forego my liberties for the sake of my brother. I, for, for my brother for whom Christ died, I will not cause him to stumble because of what I drink or because of what I, I eat. Again, that's what Corinthians and Romans both speaks of. Like it or not, with that family sitting there with their kids, looking over at their deacon and his friends, and you're all sitting there drinking your beer, what, you have, what, what have you just done to your testimony with that family? I guarantee you that's a family that's going to have a discussion on the way home with their kids. 
Better to forego liberties than to cause your brother to stumble. That's why the scripture always, it, it holds up abstinence as the best policy because, I mean, with all the problems in America and around the world with alcohol and what's the trouble that's caused there, I mean, uh, the, the, you know, if, if abstinence for a, a deacon or, and, and others were, were held up as, as a high standard, then, then all these problems, you wouldn't even run the risk of facing some of these dangers to begin with. You, again, you might say, well, I didn't have 12, I just had one. But again, it's still that stumbling block issue. Is that something as a deacon in the church you really want to be a part of your life? Do you want to run the risk of hurting your testimony? He says, not greedy for money. Church leaders and those in positions of service need to have a heart for Matthew 6.33 where Jesus says, seek first the kingdom of God. Folks, we got to live in this world. we got to support our families. We want our businesses to, to prosper and make a profit. As we make a profit, we can save for the future. The book of Proverbs is loaded with instructions about that. It cautions us to go to the animal world and even the insects and, and see how the, uh, the ants and the grasshoppers even lay up in store for the future. There's nothing wrong with being in business and making a healthy profit and looking after your family and employees and planning for the future. I mean the Jews were known for that sort of thing but always you do that or you just got to make sure you're not being dishonest or greedy book of Amos talked about using dishonest scales in the marketplace so you could jack up your profit a little bit and cheat people what a shame it would be to have a deacon in the church in some kind of business in the community and he had a reputation by everybody in the community yeah go there if you want to be cheated he's a shyster next he talks about holding the, minist- holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience 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 get that word out deacons are to be doctrinally sound do you know your Bible do you know what you believe and why not saying you've got to be able to enter into some kind of theological debate but let's say you're sitting in the home with one of your families you minister to and their 10 year old begins asking you questions about being a Christian and the Christian faith could you sit there with that 10 year old and and explain in some kind of rational and logical and clear way what the gospel is and and how you become a Christian how you live the Christian life or would you have to say oh wait a minute I'll have to call the preacher about that one deacons are to be those who are able to hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. In fact, if we go back to that Acts chapter 6 passage, we would see that Stephen was one of those who was put forth. The next thing you read about Stephen was he was going out in the area and he was debating with the religious authorities and he was taking the scripture and opening the scripture up and he was preaching Jesus from the scripture and showing the religious authorities how Jesus is the Messiah that they'd been waiting on. And what did they do with Stephen? His face was like the face of an angel. And finally they could not, they could not deal with his spirit and his wisdom. So what did they do? They arrested him. They ended up killing him. They stoned him. He was the first martyr of the church. Stephen, a man 
comes out of that passage we read this morning. A deacon holding clearly the mystery of the faith with a good conscience. Next on our list is the husband of one wife, Mias Ganukas Andra. Boy, now that's a hot potato today, isn't it? My time's up. I don't need to cover that one. You know I don't run from tough text. But before we get too deep into this issue, let, let me preface my comments by saying it's a good thing such things are addressed in the Bible. Wherever you find yourself falling down on this issue, the one thing we can be grateful about in the church is the church is the only remaining institution on the face of the earth that still believes in the sanctity of marriage. In a society where living together outside of wedlock and divorce have almost become norm, the church is the one place where marriage is still honored because the Word of God teaches marriage. And the Word of God from the very passages on creation are what gives us the definition of marriage. How absurd to think as a society we can redefine marriage. God is the one who, re, who defines marriage. If the Bible didn't address marriage... We wouldn't even need to be having this discussion right here. What's it mean? Well, Roman Catholics believe only a single man can be either a pastor or a deacon. Because his, his one woman is the church, they say. The church, the bride of Christ. But Paul argued to the Corinthians he had every right to have a wife as Peter and the other apostles did. Some say it means you've got to be married. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, the higher clergy are to be celibate, but their parish ministers are obligated to be married. But Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying he wished they would remain single and celibate as he was. And so to say that you've got to be married would mean that they'd followed, if they had followed his advice, nobody at Corinth could have been a deacon because nobody would have been married. Some say it means if you're married and your wife dies and you remarry, then you're disqualified. But Paul addressed that specifically in Romans chapter 7. He spoke of how death dissolves the marriage bond so that you are able to freely take another spouse without having any kind of stigma about you of being an adulterer or an adulteress. Some say, oh, it involves polygamy. Well, of course it does. But that's not the primary meaning here because contrary to what some people believe, polygamy was very rare in the first century and Roman law, secular law, even prevented it, prohibited it. In Roman society, it was much like American society today, a perfect analogy. Is polygamy allowed in our society today? No, it's against the law. Would you ever find it existing anywhere in America? Yes, certain pockets of America, certain regions of the country you go to. You can find it scattered here or there. Same way in Roman society. 
how unlikely it would have been that Paul was addressing an issue that was both rare and illegal. Some say it simply means committed to your one wife. And most would agree that is the basic meaning. When you look at just the words, just the text, the grammatical, uh, textual considerations, and, and you just look at the phrase and you look at mias, ganukas, andros, the, the basic fundamental meaning is that, that you are committed to your wife. You're a, you're a faithful man. Now to say that you're committed to your one wife means that, that even if you've only been married one time, there's still a possibility you're not a Mieskanukas Andros. You might be a flirtatious man. You might be a womanizer. You might be addicted to pornography. And you could point to your marriage license and say, I've only been married once. I've only got one marriage license. But that doesn't mean you're a Mieskanukas Andros. And most would agree that's that's the basic thing Paul's addressing here. Finally, some say it rules out divorced men. Now, there are some things in favor of that interpretation and some things against it. Against the interpretation is the fact that both Jesus and Paul set down two specific situations in which divorce was permissible, those being adultery and abandonment. Now, even in those cases, divorce doesn't have to be mandatory if there can be reconciliation and forgiveness, but at least those were two situations in the New Testament where, where divorce was allowable. And along with the divorce was the right to remarry, again, without any kind of stigma. Well, perhaps in favor of it including divorce is the same grounds I spoke of a minute ago with alcohol, the risk of being a stumbling block. Now, before getting further into this, let me say that we need to understand while, while I realize there may never be a truly 100% innocent party, many people don't know how diligently some marriage partners desperately try to hold their marriage together. And the other marriage partner will simply have absolutely nothing to do with reconciliation under any circumstances. If you've ever counseled with soon-to-be divorced couples, rarely are things so cut and dry as some people would have you to believe. All divorce is not equal. Some very, very fine people, some wonderful examples even, get deeply hurt. Also, I know of a couple of cases where the man was divorced by the time he was 19 or 20 years of age. Then he became a Christian and his second wife, he's been married to his second wife 40, 45 years. Wonderful track record. I'm thinking of a man right now in the church, probably been married to his wife 40, 45 years. Wonder, one of the finest examples of Christian discipleship we have in the church here. Surely things like that need to be considered. But however, however unfortunate it may be, the truth of the matter is, while a divorced man may be very qualified, yet at some point I can almost guarantee you, his divorce will become an issue and a stumbling block to somebody if he's a deacon, and both he and his family will end up deeply hurt. 
You may say that's not fair. And it's not fair. But I've been around this way too long to say otherwise. I've seen it too much. And for that reason I would simply counsel divorced men. Though you're probably more qualified than some of the men who serve as deacons. I'd advise you to serve in a thousand other areas of the church. You don't have to be a deacon in name to do the work of a deacon. Folks, this is the very same issue with pastoring. I know a man now deceased, wonderful man, divorced through apparently no fault of his own. He got out of the ministry, and then, but then the church said, it's not a problem. Come and be our pastor. He said, no, I won't. And they looked into it. They said, no, 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 you were, you were exonerated and all that. Come and be our pastor. But as new members got, as that church began growing, new members came into that church, and, it, and they discovered, I tell you what, it became such an issue, that church almost split. And that original group went to him, and they said, Pastor, we're so, so sorry. But we do need to ask you to resign. It's about to split the church. It'll surface. It'll be an issue. You say in those cases it shouldn't be an issue. And you're right, but it is. It becomes an issue to those in the church who may not be thinking maturely about the situation or may be pointing with a broad brush. But folks, that seems to be the very thing the Apostle Paul was addressing in Romans 14 where the weaker brother takes offense. Another qualification, managing their children and their households well. Here again, perfection is never achieved this side of heaven. And not even the home of a deacon is, is going to be without its share of trials and tribulations. In fact, Satan might attack that man. Don't you ever think that a deacon has to be without trial or tribulation? Some deacons have come to me going through trials and say, Pastor, what do you think about this? Do I need to step down? And I say, well, what are you doing with the trial? How are you handling the situation? And it turns out they're trying to manage it very well and under the lordship of Christ. That's very commendable. And he's trying to be that standard bearer at home, that example. That's what he's talking about here. Again, I want you to see this morning how deacons can be a blessing to the church. And should be. The office of deacon was started to meet a real need. These men became a blessing to the apostles and a blessing to the church. They freed the apostles up to be better at what they were called to do. And the apostles were able to keep their focus. And all the daily physical needs of the church were met. Indeed, look at verse 7. Uh, verse 7 of our text, if you go back to uh, Acts chapter 7. Uh, excuse me, Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. You see, when this problem had a godly proposal, godly persons that dealt with it, then there was the progress. The church flourished. In other words, what Satan meant for evil, God turned it around and used it for good. And so I want you to understand this morning, the office of deacon matters. The men in these positions matter. Their lives matter. Their testimonies matter. 
I bring that up because I know of some churches that have even done away with the office of deacon in modern day time. Don't even have them. But it's a biblical office and it matters. The whole ministry of the church can be strengthened through the office of deacon. And so what do you need to do? You need to be praying about the men that we're going to be electing next month. Every man nominated needs to take it very seriously and we need to take it very seriously. Beyond that, everybody in here needs to look very seriously at their life, their service. Are you using the gift God has called you to do? Are you complacent and apathetic? Absent without leave? You're not bringing your lamp to church, so to speak. Your area is dark, and because it's dark, others are trying to come in and make up the gap, and they might be tired or frustrated. You need to bring your lamp, so to speak. You need to get in. What's God calling you to do? That's obedience. Is there something in your life that's wrong you need to address? Maybe your testimony's at stake about something. I would hope you would care enough about your testimony and about your Christian walk and, and your reputation and the life of the church. You'd be willing to deal with maybe whatever it is you're wrestling with. Deal with it so you can be that servant. You see, in the church there was diakonos in the official capacity and Diakonos was also used in an unofficial capacity in the New Testament church. We're all to be deacons in that unofficial sense. Servants. Is there something about your life though that would mess up your testimony? Maybe even give the church a black eye. Do you care enough about the kingdom of God and the life of the church to address that? Or are you just selfishly... Narrowly going about your way, looking after yourself. Every one of us ought to try to have the kind of life that, boy, I could be put forth as a deacon. Are you using your gifts for the body? Are you a blessing to the church? Are you edifying your Christian brothers and sisters in Christ by doing what you're called to do? Would you stand please? Our hymn of invitation will be on the screens behind me. Maybe somebody here this morning needs to come forward and say, Well, Pastor, you know what? I'm not even really in the church. The church is made up of the redeemed. I've never come to faith in Jesus Christ. I want to be a part of the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ. I'd like to pray with you about surrendering your life to the Lordship of Christ. Maybe others here looking for a church home say, I want to be in a church that tries to teach and preach the Word of God and obey the Word of God and pray for one another, encourage one another, meet needs. I want to be a part of that kind of church. We're not perfect, but I hope we're trying to be that kind of church. We'd love to have you be a part of our fellowship. Maybe you need to come to this altar and say, God, you know what? I really have been letting down my brothers and sisters in Christ. I've not been bringing my lamp. I've not been serving. Or maybe you need to come pray about some issue in your life that could hurt your testimony.